Want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction, Canada's sportsbook. Every hockey, football, and basketball game at your fingertips, and World Cup is almost here. Bet pregame, live, and play are on one of our many prop bets. Made by Canadians for Canadians, Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, play, and cash out. Join now to see all that sports betting has to offer. Head to sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. That's sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. Ontario only, 19 plus, please play responsibly. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild, Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. Welcome to Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. How are you, Adam? Oh, Alan, I'm excited for today because this is a guy, uh, Chris Nowinski is the guest today, and I'm excited about this person because this is somebody that you've mentioned like from the beginning, this was somebody that you wanted to have on this show. Yeah, Chris, uh, I, I've known Chris for about a decade now, uh, but I really got to know Chris well um, about a year and a half ago when uh, he reached out and asked me to uh, serve on the uh, Western Advisory Board of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. And uh, in my role on that board, I've been interacting with Chris on a on a regular basis, and uh, he's somebody that I uh, I admire uh, tremendously. He's a remarkable individual. Um, he's passionate and carries that passion and emotion on his sleeve, and that's something that I've always been attracted to and, and admired in people. And uh, I think this is a very necessary conversation that every member of the media, every player, every parent uh, in any contact sport uh, should be watching and and listening to because uh, Chris is the foremost expert on CTE worldwide um, and uh, and he's informed on all of the latest research. Uh, in the area and all the research that is currently underway. He co-authored a study, the definitive study, finding a causal link that was uh, published recently with 14 other leading experts in the field. Um, And really there's, there's, there's nobody else to speak to on this issue, but Chris, and uh, it's, we're very fortunate to have him here as a guest. One of the most impressive resumes of, of anybody you're going to meet because, you know, goes to Harvard, graduates, and then ends up in the WWE. He'll explain some of that. And then founds uh, at Boston University the CTE uh, Research and Development. What a fascinating person. And, and uh, I don't know, uh, Alan, it's, it's going to – we got a lot of questions for him. Um, uh, and I think, I think the thing that people will likely find the most illuminating is the NHL's relationship or i guess lack thereof to the research that's clearly showing there's a link so let's bring on chris and uh let's get started with him our guest today is one of the most remarkable men i've ever known a harvard graduate who starred uh on the harvard football team where he was named all ivy upon graduation from harvard he joined the WWE as a professional wrestler where he suffered a traumatic brain injury and struggled with post-concussion syndrome that ultimately ended his wrestling career. In 2006, 
He authored the groundbreaking book, Head Games, Football's Concussion Crisis, which, which examined the long-term effects of head trauma amongst athletes. The book and follow-up documentary sent shockwaves throughout the NFL. He co-founded the Concussion Legacy Foundation and the Unite Brain Bank at Boston University and has dedicated his life to changing the conversation on repetitive head impacts, concussion, and CTE in sports. A 2017 PhD in behavioral neuroscience, let's give a big welcome to Dr. Chris Nowinski of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good golf clap. <laughs> well, we clap, if we clap too loud into the microphone, it'll just make How too much noise, How are you doing noise, today, Chris? Chris? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, uh, good move. Very professional. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. It's really uh, an honor to be here. Big, big fans of yours in this podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Why don't we begin uh, by a little bit about your background? How does a guy playing football at Harvard all Ivy end up as a WWE wrestler. Oh, it's a story you've heard before many times. Uh, no, I, uh, I got into healthcare consulting. <laughs> it, it felt like it wasn't necessarily for me yet to go rent my brain to the highest bidder uh, at, at 22. And so I, uh, what about I, uh, the owner of the firm who is uh, still on our, our board of directors of the foundation, a great guy, John Corcoran, happened to have friends in wrestling, and we were both wrestling fans, and a lunchtime conversation turned into, you should give that a try. This job will always be here for you if you, if, if you don't make it. And some calls were made, and I find myself in a ring with Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff for a tryout, and, and they're like, yeah, I should stick with this. And then you, then you enroll in Killer Kowalski's Institute for Professional Wrestling nights and weekends while you're consulting, and then... WWE partners with MTV for a reality show called Tough Enough, and you send in a tape, and suddenly you're sort of, sort of uh, becoming a professional wrestler and having a great time doing it. And how long did you do that? Just three years uh, before the kicks to the head added up. <laughs> and and when, you, when you say that, there was actually a specific event that, that ended your wrestling career. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it was, it was, I had, I had four definite concussions over three years and two of them were a month apart uh, at the end. And the last one, uh, you know, a month apart and without any recovery in between just sort of ended, ended, it ended my brain feeling normal. I had like permanent symptoms from a kick to the chin, headaches, uh, can't exercise without getting uh, headaches uh, and, and feeling nauseous. Um, I have a permanent sleep disorder from it. Like that last one was just a, a real life changer for me. And uh, after about 12 months of trying to get better, uh, I decided if I ever get my brain health back and feel normal, I can't go back into the ring. And so I basically ended it and um, spent a lot of time trying to get my brain better. So you're somebody that uh, came to the entire uh, issue of CTE and repetitive repetitive impacts head impacts from personally experiencing uh, a lot of the issues that athletes today retired athletes and current athletes are experiencing yeah so when i got hurt i uh was lucky that the eighth doctor i saw that was trying to put humpty dumpty back together again was dr robert Cantu, who at that point was one of the world's experts on concussion and he 
You know, it's not that he could fix me overnight, but he educated me and he helped me appreciate that I, I actually never thought at that point I'd had a diagnosed concussion. So he helped me appreciate that all those dings and bell ringers and blackouts and stuff were actually concussions. And he taught me for the first time how important rest was and why. And then he sort of alluded to these long-term effects. And I thought, geez, that would have been really helpful to know for the last 19 years I was out banging my head. Uh, and so this idea that sort of percolated once I started learning about all the other athletes Actually, one of the big you know switches for me is I called. There were two guys on my Harvard team who retired from concussions while I was there, and I called them, sort of check in, and say like, how how are you doing? Because I sort of realized they may not be full speed because you don't talk about concussion problems because you realize no one wants to hear it. So I was sort of shocked to learn they were both still symptomatic. They never got back to one hundred percent. It helped me realize there was this issue going on below the surface that no one was talking about and um, that it could easily be changed because athletes don't like to destroy themselves. And if they just knew what, what, what they should do when they get concussions and understood them, that they could not end up where I was. So what is CTE? Can you tell everybody what it is? So CTE um, is something we've learned about really over the last 17 years. It's called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's a brain disease that's caused by repeated head impacts. It's something that we now know, we used to think, you know, concussions really mattered for this disease, but now we know that, you, that a lot of those hard hits that you don't, you feel fine are still damaging your brain. And so repetitive hard head impacts can spark this degenerative process um, that sticks with you even after you stop playing. And uh, it has four stages as it, pro- it progresses um, yeah, the fourth stage, you basically almost always have dementia. And on the way, you go through sort of a roller coaster of symptoms that progressively get worse. Your cognition progressively gets worse. You, you can have mental health disorders that we think are caused by the disease's progression. And um, we started a brain bank to sort of figure this out uh, in partnership with Boston University back in 2008. And um, is it possible to get CTE? If you've never had repetitive uh, subconcussive hits to the head? So what we know today is that people have scoured some of the world's brain banks and some of the largest ones. We don't see anybody with this disease who just had one concussion. In the absence of repeated head impacts, there's not any case anyone's confident that just one concussion caused it. There's something about the repetition, the inflammatory cycles that pile upon each other, that this very abnormal 50 or 100 hits, hits a week um, that is starting. And that when, and even the other piece of data that's important is in the, you know, nearly a thousand cases that have been diagnosed, but 20% of them never had a diagnosed concussion. Now, of course, we know that most people never reported their concussions, but it gives us good confidence they were not knocked unconscious, or at least for any period of time. Um, so that idea that Again, uh, you have to know, you have to feel something to have your brain being damaged. We now know is naive. How do you confirm a CTE diagnosis? So you actually, when you get into the brain disease world, you realize that people, almost all brain diseases can't be confirmed until you actually look at the brain under a microscope. Basically, there's a lot of different ways that brains can break down, whether it's uh, certain proteins going haywire um, certain regions of the brain uh, getting uh, progressively impacted. And so um, you actually, to, to diagnose with confidence that 100%, you have to look under a microscope. So it, it, 
and with the other diseases that we've studied for longer, we now have clinical diagnostic criteria, but they're only right, you know, somewhere between 60 to 80% of the time. So if you go to a doctor with Alzheimer's disease uh, you, and, and they tell you you have Alzheimer's, they're not sure you have Alzheimer's. You look like you have Alzheimer's, but they may find out after you die that it was a different disease that was causing symptoms that look like Alzheimer's. And so that's sort of where we are. And, um, you said they examine the brain. What are they looking for when they do that? So in, it wasn't until 2015, um, you know, based on the work of the, our, our Unite Brain Bank that, that we you know, co-founded with Boston University with Anne McKee. Uh, Anne McKee was able to diagnose so many cases that she was able to sort of identify what's unique about CTE, what they call the pathognomonic lesion of CT. What differentiates it from every other disease? And essentially, you have, a, you have a protein in your brain cells called tau. And this tau is sort of a structural element that's holding together parts of your axon, the really long, uh, thin uh, projection from a neuron that's about 1 20th the width of a human hair. You stretch that, and what you find is the tau can start to crumble. And you see this tau become misfolded. It used to hold something together like this. Now it crumbles. And um, you're able to actually use an antibody and stain it by hand. And you can see this misfolded tau gets brown. Where you see the brown, that's where you have damage. And the damage is, uh, tends to be at the depths of the sulcus. So you have hills and valleys on the surface of your brain. Your cortex is sort of crammed in. The problem here, that the reason why I think CT is being caused by head impacts is it's a physics issue. If you take any shape that looks like a brain and you twist it rapidly, all the energy goes to the bottom of those valleys on the surface of the brain. And so that's where we see it first. So we believe it's just more energy is going down there, pulling axons apart. And it's also usually around blood vessels because blood vessels are um, of a different strength than your brain tissue. And so you get this shearing energy. And so the impacts are driving this damage to the depths of the sulcus where it will spread from there uh, throughout the brain for the rest of your life. So in 2016... The NFL, uh, through their lawyer, Jeff Miller, uh, speaking before a con congressional committee, uh, finally acknowledged uh, that uh, repetitive head impacts that occur routinely in football are a causation factor in developing CTE. Talk about that moment and how you how that came about? Yeah, so to be perfectly honest, if you go back and watch the tape, um, that was an interesting moment. So what happened was uh, Jeff Miller was asked, you know, does it cause CTE? And he said, certainly it's linked. Certainly football is linked. He used the word linked. And he was about to give another sentence that would have been couching it down to, but we don't know this, we don't know that, which is sort of what the corporations do. And the, the congressman, Jan Schakowsky, cut him off and just said, saying it's linked? Okay. And that got sort of written up by the press is that was the first time the NFL even said it was linked. And that sort of turned into, like, most people's interpretation of linked is caused by. And so that became sort of the story that came out of that event. But I don't think they ever intended to say it was caused by. And then various people tried to walk back that statement, like uh, Jerry Jones, other people saying, I, don't, I still don't buy it. Um, but the NFL sort of asked, is that really what you believe? And they were sort of forced to say yes. So, um, but I, I don't know how much they believe that 
because you know people like the NFL are still recruiting five-year-olds to play tackle football, and if they really believed that it was causing a brain disease, uh, that would be a really awkward policy. It would be like handing out cigarettes to kids on the corner. So I don't, I don't exactly know where the NFL stands on this even today, but it was a big deal because it did change the conversation uh, quite a bit um, that they at least accepted it was linked. So you talked about changing the conversation. Why don't we switch to the NHL and hockey? Uh, are the hits that typically appear in a, in a hockey game the kind of hits that could lead to someone later in life developing CTE? There's no question about it, uh, that the hits you take as a hockey player um, whether it's elbows to the head or whether you're falling on the ice or going to the boards could cause CTE. You know, basically this has now been found in every contact sport and uh, military service, people with uh, epilepsy where it wasn't controlled well and they fell a lot, uh, people that are victims of abuse. Um, there's no question. And it's sort of ironic to think that uh, is hockey or is this a problem in the NHL? Because CT used to be called punch drunk because it was first seen in boxers and every everyone by the 1950s knew boxing caused people to get punch drunk. Like you, you, I, I show videos of comedians, you know, playing punch drunk characters on national television, in, you know, in the 50s. But um, and so many elements of, uh, you know, for the NHL to say that they don't believe their game causes CT is, is, is absurd because, you know, you, definitely the fighters are doing something that no one has ever questioned. But then we now know, we've studied this to so many people who weren't fighters, and now so many other sports, that just the play of hockey itself um, these days uh, can cause it. I think I so, want to jump in um, here. Oh, it's okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, go ahead, Adam. The, the one thing that, Alan, I think you mentioned, and you, you mentioned it as sub-concussive, and I picked that up as a fan of the game. Sub-concussive is what you wouldn't consider a concussion, but still a hit to the head. Is that correct? Yes, although it's a bad term, and we can we can get into that. Okay. Well, the, the question I had about uh, subconcussive or the, the other terms we might want to use for it is, is, I think that's a really important distinction. It's not just concussions that are causing the CTE. Is, is, did I get that right? Right, definitely. So... And, and a way to understand this, and a, and a talking point we're starting to use is, subconcussive is a bad name because we we we've I've even seen me and my colleagues saying it's the repetitive smaller hits. It's not the smaller hits. We should be calling those eight those non the, the, the hits don't cause concussion be called non-concussive. But now that we're putting sensors in the helmets of football players, for example, there are multiple studies showing that concussions aren't always the hardest hit to the head. So the sensors will tell you that. Um, you know, you get hit, they start counting at 10 G's. Some people get hit over 100 G's. The concussions, if you group them, happened about the 85th or 90th percentile. So for some people, it's the hardest hit they took all year. But other people, it's just a random hit because of the, you know, they're caught off guard, their head rotated the wrong way. You know, there's all sorts of variables that determine whether or not you feel symptoms. The different part of their brain was injured that they didn't notice. So if you imagine a football player taking 1,000 hits to the head every year, even if that person got a concussion on one of them, odds are they took 100 hits to the head that were harder. And those are the hits that I could be confident. If we thought concussions could cause this, those could cause it. So 
we now know that your football player takes a thousand hits to the head in a season. If if one is a concussion, you'll probably have at least a hundred other hits that were harder than a concussion. And that makes a lot of sense now that I think back to the hits I took, because I remember more hits that I popped up from than I do that concussed me. And the, some of those hits were harder, and I would have assumed I would have felt something, but I didn't. We now know it's naive to think you're going to feel every neuron getting damaged, right? You have 86 billion neurons in your brain, trillions of connections. You rattle that brain, you're, you're killing neurons, you're rearranging your brain. We can see it under a microscope. Dr. McKee and others can see it under a microscope and people die. You see white matter changes, all these other things that are, you know, uh, small signs of brain bleeds very often in people who've died. Uh, but they didn't, those weren't concussive impacts. They didn't feel something. They didn't get headaches. They didn't have double vision. They didn't, you know. So, we, yeah, it sort of changed how we think about what brain injury really is. So let me ask you about NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, who has consistently denied that there's uh, uh, enough medical and scientific certainty for a uh, causal link to be established between repetitive impacts and diseases like CTE. Do you want to address that? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been very disappointing to have so many heads of sports organizations, you know, claim that they're not convinced, or they have scientists who aren't convinced of a causal link between head impacts or repetitive traumatic brain injury and CTE. You know, it was first ridiculous when you thought back to everybody understands that the boxers get punched drunk, getting hit in the head a thousand times, whether it's by glove fist or a helmet or an elbow or a shoulder or falling on the ground. It doesn't matter. Like that's that's intuitively obvious. So at any point, the NHL should have known if boxers get punched drunk, hockey players get punched drunk. It would just be a question of what's the risk. And, it's, and then the question then becomes, when could they have said, we're convinced? They could have said, we're convinced when we started finding this in the NFL, the NFL players was first published in 2005 or NHL players. It was first seen in 2009, Reggie Fleming. That wasn't, they didn't acknowledge it then. In 2014, the head of the National Institutes of Neurological Disorders and Stroke and the head of research on CT for the Department of Defense both said, it's obvious, it's, it's causal. That's what the evidence says. They could have said it then, they didn't. Now we're at the point where in 2019, the CDC said they're convinced of cause and effect. And now uh, last month, the National Institutes of Health, uh, which is the NINDS, which runs CT for National Institutes of Health, they said they're convinced. And so everybody important is convinced, everybody independent, everybody unbiased, the true experts in our country of looking at a world of scientific uh, research and drawing conclusions on cause and effect. They're convinced. And so now it's just like, just depressing to watch that sports leagues aren't following yet because these sports leagues uh, have more than just a responsibility to their players, although they, they have a clear one to their players, but they have a responsibility for the game. And they, they have a lot of influence in the youth game and teenagers and what people know and what people understand. CTE we now know is an entirely preventable disease. Um, but it's a disease we cannot diagnose with people, we cannot treat. And so the longer that people like Gary Bettman keep saying they're not convinced or their doctors that they have to hire are not convinced, 
um, the longer people will continue to get hurt without knowing or accepting that risk. And to me, as a former athlete who was willing to run through walls for a whole lot of people who I now realize may not care about me at all, um, I think it's a shame that um, people are still being lied to about the truth about CT. Well, Gary says we need more research, that the uh, research isn't there, the findings aren't there. Um, there's nothing more than some anecdotal evidence. That's a quote of his from a few years ago. Um, he's testified before Canadian Parliamentary Committee saying there there is not enough evidence. Uh, the, the research is really in a nascent state, uh, really at the very beginning. How do you address that? Well, you know, that sort of falls under the big tobacco playbook and merchants of doubt. If you ever are a movie buff or if you haven't seen it yet, go watch Thank You for Smoking, where they literally is a consultant teaching people how to say these things of we need more research. We need more research. It's not it's not conclusive. Conclusive is a big word they like to use. Um, But then when you actually dig into how you determine cause and effect and how you make policy decisions around it, there's the answer is you always need more research. But there comes a point where you can evaluate the preponderance of evidence and determine whether or not to make a leap from seeing an association to causation. So one of the things we did was I got together with a number of the scientists in our global brain banks. So we started starting brain banks around the world, Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, to try to get more scientists working on CT, validate what we're finding in the States, they're also finding there. So that's been wildly successful. Uh, you know, they used to say this is just an American problem or a North American problem. Now we can know that it's a global problem because we've seen CT in these other sports in these other countries. But uh, we got together and we reviewed the cause and effect criteria through what's called the Bradford Hill Guidelines, which most people uh, are not familiar with. But it's a very interesting and special set of guidelines. Basically, Sir Austin Bradford Hill was one of the first people to figure out and provide the evidence that smoking caused lung cancer. Part of a famous study in 1950, uh, studying doctors in the UK who smoked and who didn't smoke, and understanding that the smokers got the lung cancer. So, uh, it, you know, it, as his career went on and he became one of the world's experts in environmental causation, he, he developed this criteria nine different ways you can look through the literature that would inform your position on causation. And so we decided to look at the CT literature through repetitive head impacts through this model. And we were actually surprised at how amazingly strong the evidence is and how closely it lines up. That not only is it like it's almost impossible to doubt that head impacts are causing CT, but also there's not another hypothesis anywhere in the world that's reasonable for why this is happening almost exclusively to athletes and veterans. Um, you know, things like strength of association, there's, it's a, here's, a, here's an interesting note for you. The um, Mayo Clinic, our brain bank, the Boston University VA, and the Department of Defense have now all published studies of hundreds of brains, finding that only the athletes get it. The people who weren't exposed to sports don't get it. Uh, and we're talking about um, literally hundreds and hundreds of people. So that gives you a statistical strength that's sort of mind-blowing in terms of the odds of this being sort of a chance finding. Uh, but also, again, it's been found in all these other countries. Um, it lines up to exactly what we, you know, the physics I mentioned earlier lines up exactly uh, in terms of the mechanism, what we understand. 
They even found what looks like CTE just this spring in muskox from Greenland who would ram heads all day. So we used to sort of laugh that maybe they don't get it, but they actually have brains shaped a little bit like humans. And they found that the energy goes to the depths of the sulcus, and that's where you see this uh, special lesion. So everything lines up to it. And they, people have floated alcohol or drugs or other things. None of that's true. That's all been now reviewed, and you do not get this disease from those things. You get other problems, but you don't get this disease. So, like, there's no there's nowhere else to stand on this. It's sort of interesting to watch some of the sports leagues now sort of flailing to find other reasons why they can keep this sort of um, cover-up going, in a sense. Uh, you know, so you know, people are saying that the studies aren't, aren't the right kind of studies and these other things. Um, again, the NIH and the CDC both reviewed the data. You don't have to have perfect studies to conclude cause and effect. It takes, you know, the, you know we can't ever do a double-blind placebo-controlled study on CT. We cannot separate twins at birth and only hit one in the head and have the other one protected from all head impacts and figure this out. So we have to interpret the the research we have and the research we have to most of the world's experts on dementia and other things is conclusive. Uh, how many NHL players are you aware of that have had their brains uh, examined um, after death um, at at the Boston University Brain Bank? I don't know the exact number. I think we're over 15 now. And how many have been found to have CTE? All but one. So I'm going to read you some names of, of some, some fantastic players who've played in the NHL in the past who are no longer with us. Stan Mikita. Was he found, his brain found to have CTE? Yeah, and I actually got a chance to meet with him before he before he had severe dementia and spent some time with him. He was such a sweet guy. Bob Probert, what about him? Yep, he had CT. Derek Bugard. Yes, sir. Steve Monitor. Yes, not our case, but yes. Jeff Parker. Yes. Wade Belak. Yes. Larry Zidal. Yes. Reggie Fleming. Yes, sir. Rick Martin. Mm-hmm. Todd Ewan. Yes. And Dan Maloney? I believe so. And just uh, this week uh, came news of Marek Svatos. Right. So let's talk about Todd Ewan uh, in particular, because his was a very interesting, uh, uh, I would say, saga after um, he died. His brain was initially uh, reviewed by a uh, researcher. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yes, when he was when he when he passed away, his uh, brain was studied by a research group in Toronto, who uh, told his wife that he didn't have CTE when he that died. That he did not. Yes, and, and then the the real troubling part was that was used. By, by Gary Bettman specifically to claim that all this talk about CT was scaring people into killing themselves who were healthy and created this sort of narrative that there was, it wasn't the disease, it was the conversation about the disease. And what ultimately happened uh, with regard to Todd Ewan and a CTE diagnosis? So his wife didn't believe that story and that diagnosis, partially because Todd wasn't, wasn't just concerned about having CT, he was actually getting lost. In his own neighborhood, he was forgetting 
you know, significant events. He was he was deteriorating cognitively, which is most closely associated with CT. And it's really hard to deteriorate cognitively uh, without having a disease going on in your head, you know, outside of some some standard things. I mean, your cognition is sensitive to sleep and other things, but to have a multi-year progression usually means something's going on. So um, so she had his brain sent over to, to Dr. McKee at Boston University, and Dr. McKee diagnosed diagnosed at stage two CT. It was pretty, pretty obvious. Well, I mean, these mistakes can be made. So what has happened before in these situations is that you basically have to have an antibody, you know, that live antibody stained real tissue. And sometimes that antibody can go south, you know, 1% of the time, whatever it is. And so, and when it's often caught because nothing stains. And so you realize like everyone has some protein wrong somewhere and when you get nothing, people sometimes double check. But if you weren't necessarily, if you were expecting to see nothing, you may not double check. So I don't think there was fraud or anything like that. But I do think a mistake was made that maybe wasn't investigated as closely because, you know, I think the tissue, you know, other people looked at the tissue too. Like he definitely had it. Did the original researcher who made the no CTE diagnosis ever acknowledge the error? That I don't remember exactly what she said. Um, I think there was, you know, the question, I think she felt like she did everything right and she didn't see it. But again, you know, now that it's been seen all but one NHL players, the odds that he didn't have it when he was also got involved in a lot of fights are very slim. So I think, I think a mistake was made somewhere. Okay. Um, have you ever, I mean, with all this evidence and research that you have, have you ever tried reaching out to Gary Bettman directly to say, hey, come on in, sit down with us. Let's show you and your doctors and your people what we have here. Yeah, we actually went to see uh, the team, Bill Daly and Gary Bettman and uh, one of the doctors, Ruben Eshamendia. It might have been right after Reggie Fleming, so it might have been around 2010 or so. Um where, you know, our goal was not always to be antagonistic towards these leagues. And we were thinking, you know, NHL was early on concussion protocols. Like maybe they would be happy to know this and could make some changes because we sort of, you know, I think I will speak for anyone else. But we sort of looked at like football's got a problem, like tackling and blocking is going to cause CT no matter how you do it. Hockey, you know, there's a little more choice in it, right? You don't have to choose to run each other in the boards that, you know, most you know adult leagues don't do that. You don't have checking you don't have you know there's all sorts of um changes that could be made to make it much safer so we went in there sort of trying to be sort of uh with you know hopeful about uh what they would think and we so we we took a meeting we walked through our data we walked through our experience and we sort of told them you know you're you're you know maybe you could make some change you know with this information you can make some changes to make the game safer um nothing came of it except for i had to correct um Mr. Bettman once when he tried to claim that at, at that meeting, we told him hockey doesn't have a problem and we, or something like that. And we, and I had to say, no, no, that's not what we said. We said hockey, lucky doesn't have as big of a problem as football, but it's still had a problem and it needs to be addressed. Well, that was in 2010. Uh, it's 12 years ago. Um, how about any engagement with the NHL since with all the research and data you've accumulated since, including all the players that have been found to have CTE. Yeah. You know, that's been, it's been a shame as the evidence has accrued. There's been, there's been no dialogue with the NHL. And frankly, there hasn't been dialogue 
with the PA either on this, which has been very disappointing. Um, you know, they, I remember early on when they actually came to the brain bank, I remember going to the brain bank with representatives from the PA and the NHL saying, here's what we're seeing, you know, you guys, I think that was before the Batman meeting, so, you know, sort of set it up saying, here's the science. Um, and I, I always find it a little surprising that like nobody calls to, to ask what we're finding, what, what might be coming out ahead. Cause findings are always delayed year or two with publications in terms of the peer review process. So we might be able to tell them things that aren't even widely known yet because we care about preventing these people's, uh, you know, brain damage and, and potentially early deaths. But no, we, uh, we don't have a good dialogue in ice, in ice hockey right now. And wh- why do you think that is? So one of the reasons I think the NHL has been able to sort of not talk about this is uh, they don't have the same sort of scrutiny uh, from from the press on this. And I think they realize that. Um, and so I remember an email from the general counsel from the NHL, Julie Grand, that came out due to the lawsuits um, that where she said, let's let this be the NFL's problem. Let's not, I don't know if she's referring to not funding research or not talking about it or whatever it was, but I think their their goal is like duck and eventually, um, you know, we'll either get worn out or uh, the media will lose interest in the issue uh, or, or whatever it is. I mean, luckily that hasn't happened and it's only gotten worse and the evidence only gotten stronger. So I don't know when they're going to finally flip it. I don't know what it means. Knowing that I understand now that uh, this Montador lawsuit is, is now going again in Cook County, Illinois. I think they realize that if they admit there's a link or admit there's causation, they'll uh, it'll be expensive for them and they'll be sued from, from former families or families going forward. And so I think, honestly, like I think this is just an easy legal decision for them is deny and take the embarrassment over losing the money. Um, and that's just, unfortunately, the world we live in. So Gary Bettman has consistently said, we need more research on this. We need more research. And he's also said repeatedly, the NHL is a family. We're a family. So has the NHL ever approached you to fund any of your groundbreaking research on CTE? No, I mean, to my knowledge, we're not at the foundation actually doing the research, but um, I don't think they've ever offered to fund Boston University or or the VA or anybody. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those interesting issues that um, every you know the all these groups who are now just diagnosing over and over again in their pro athletes, they say we need more research, but they don't fund that research, nor do they ever fund research that might point to an alternative explanation for why all these people are getting this terrible brain disease and often very young. So it's one of those things that's like, it's so obvious, like what the truth is, you know, mm. again, like when you have the CDC and you have the National Institute of Health on your side, you are now just coming down to this as sort of classic, you know, corporate behavior, uh, whether it's the smoking industry or the coal industry or, or, you know, there's so many that have sort of, you know, covered up the harms that, that their products have brought to people uh, in order to maximize profit. And I just feel like that's what we've come down to is it's all... You know, and it's it's funny, and I'm sure you appreciate this. Like when you, I remember when I was growing up, like I really thought these commissioners were, you know, truly honorable people, and the sports was the greatest thing in the world. And these guys, you know, they determined right and wrong, and punishment and not punishment, and play by the rules, and they were the bastion of ethics. And then you get you get into it, and you realize, well, this is this is a show. Um, this is somebody who's put out 
to be the front for, you know, all these uh, super wealthy owners to keep the profit machine going. And in many cases, I would say they'll, they'll say anything to keep it going to keep their job. And I get, you know, I get it, but also like, because sports is so intertwined with children in our country, like I just can't, we can't tolerate it. And mm. so, uh, and then even just watching this disease destroy families and destroy heroes uh, you know, again, like someone like Stan McKee, I grew up in Chicago, like he was the man and, yeah. you know, I'm honored to be able to have met him, but, um, and, and for as good and long of life as he had, you know, the last years were not good. Dementia is a horrible way to die. And, uh, so it's just, it's just, you know, it's just depressing, but it also, but you know, this is, this is grown up life, I guess, <laughs> you know, there's, mm-hmm. there is, there is good and bad out there and won't use that other term, but there's, um, you know, this is, this is not all about sports anymore. This is about money. Now, Chris, I've known you for about 10 years, but I've really gotten to know you well um, over the last year and a half. And full disclosure, I sit on uh, your West Coast Regional Advisory Board, which I'm, I'm honored uh, to, to be sitting on that board and to be involved and to participate uh, and for you giving me the opportunity to participate. And the one thing that I've come to see with my own eyes over over the years is um, your passion uh, on this issue and how close you've gotten to families who have suffered through the tragedy of losing a loved one and then finding out that CTE was involved. Um, do you want to talk about that at all? Um, you know, it's, it's, that's the one thing that's, you know, sort of, this has always been driven by understanding what happened, what's happened to people that began with dying under terrible circumstances. And so, you know, I first learned about CT with Mike Webster in 2005 the first case I coordinated the brain donation of was Andre Waters in 2006, who was a superstar when I was a kid and died by suicide in a very sad way and to discover he had it. And then Justin Strelzik had it, who, was, who died while well, he was hearing voices and in a car chase with police. And the next case that we had was Chris Benoit, who I knew for five years. When I was with WWE, who killed his wife and child and confided in me that he had problems. He was worried about his concussions. It sort of helps you realize, like, this is truly a life and death issue. And so we have gotten close to a lot of these families. You know, we, we one of, it's always been sort of one of the uh, real pillars that the foundation has been built on is that you know, these families are the ones who's going to guide us to, to, you know, the truth and to guide us to a brighter future. It's their, exper- their lived experience. So, um, you know, the first hire ever made at the foundation was Lisa McHale, who was the second, the widow of the second brain donor we had at Boston University, Tom McHale, who, who was an Ivy League football player who died at 45. Um, and she's been fantastic. We now have a thousand member, you know, like what we call legacy family community of all our brain donors that we stay engaged with to continue to go back to them and, 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 and learn about the symptoms they had and how to better help families living with this. And then, like, it, you know, it's really just come full circle for me um, in that my uh, college roommate uh, has re- re- became a brain donor in December when he died uh, due to complications of uh, an extraordinary alcoholism that, 
you know, and he was he was the captain of my Harvard team. And, you know, I've known his wife, his widow for, um, you know, since, since you know, mid, late 1990s. And to, to, to see what happened to him. Um, and then his, his brain study results will be out shortly with his, his sort of life story. It's just, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you realize that this is, this is really about people and families. And, and this is one of the really sad ways you, know, you, you think you're giving your life to a sport, you know, in a positive way, but you know, for some people it's, it's taking their lives and it's really destroying their families. And so, yeah, we, we make sure we take care of our families. Adam. Chris, you know, I think what's become abundantly clear throughout this is, is you know, concussion and sorry, CTE, I guess, is, is science, right? It's, it's a scientific process. It's, uh, there, you've, you've run us through uh, everything that it takes to, to discover what it is, uh, what we think the probable cause is, you know, proven uh, across the world, not just a North American problem. Um, but I think the thing that hits the hardest is the story you just told. And I think the fact that you've gone through it yourself, uh, you mentioned that you had a, a sleep issue and that you have friend or, you know, a friend who, uh, whose results will be out soon as well. I think that it's the impact on families, right? Because people think concussion, they don't think, at least initially, unless you've gone through it yourself, they don't think family impact. They think uh, player that I know on the ice, at least in hockey terms, uh, out for a few weeks with concussion or maybe misses part of a season like Sidney Crosby did with post-concussion syndrome. They don't talk about and think about the impact daily that this has on people and maybe not during their playing career. Maybe it's well after when things start to deteriorate. And I think uh, I think that story is the one that sort of hits the hardest. That's This is this could, you know, if, if I were a high-level athlete and I'm not, um, this would be one of those things that it could affect my family every single day and I might have no control over it. Yeah. Yeah. And you think about all the, um, the players. Uh, yeah. It's one of those, you know, the concussion thing is easy. And I think that's why sports has embraced it is it's very sanitized. It's very, Hey, you got hurt. Hey, you're in protocol. Hey, you're back. And if you're not back, it's, ah, uh, you retired out of caution, but you'll be fine. And that, and that may be true. But this other issue of like you disappear for decades and you come back and suddenly you're a different person. Mm. Um, and that this game is responsible. Like that, like, you know, people don't want to believe that. No, you know, fans don't want to believe that. The owners don't want to believe that. The players don't want to believe it. Uh, but unfortunately, it's very real. And so we do need to continue to have these conversations, tell these stories, you know, that get people to really understand what's happening while the science continues to advance. But yeah, I mean, um, the science is dramatically more mature than it was when we started this conversation 15 years ago. The answers are the same. We haven't been wrong about things. You know, when people say, you don't know this, you don't know that, like we've proven most of that. And so while we'll, you know, we still can't treat it, um, but we, we do know what we're facing and we do know how to prevent it. And that's not getting hit in the head. And if, in the absence of that, it's getting hit in the head a heck of a lot less and less hard going forward. And until that's embraced, like a lot, watching a lot of these sports, it's a slow motion car crash. You're just watching guys sort of slowly, slowly die one hit at a time in front of you. You don't know which ones are going to do it, but some of them are going to have horrible outcomes based on what's happening to them right now. And, uh, you know, a lot of us will be dead by the time we see it. And I think that's, um, you know, allows it to keep going. It, are we, uh, are, are we going to be uh, at the point uh, sometime 
in the near future where there will be a diagnostic test that can um, uh, determine whether somebody has CTE or is more susceptible to CTE while they're living? It's no question. So um, in terms of understanding who's got it, there will be blood tests that help us figure this out not too far away. So there's been a lot of things identified that are unique about CTE. And what's interesting about that is basically when when you have brain injury, basically your brain tissue leaks into your bloodstream. You have the breakdown of the blood-brain barriers. You can actually take blood and pick up pieces of brain. And if we can find those bits of brain that are diagnostic for CTE or ratios of different types of things, we'll have a test and we'll have an idea of how to measure something and we'll be able to target drugs towards it. Um, So that'll happen. And we're also, you know, there's big advances in PET scans and things that are helping us sort of uh, appreciate what's going on. So thank God science is advancing. Um, the the question beyond turn this thing off. popular guy. Um, <laughs> what was the second part? You sound like me. <laughs> child's school sending their daily dump of pictures and, <laughs> and doing nothing defends you from it. Um, <laughs> so sorry. What was the second part of that question? Uh, I, I was asking oh, about a oh, diagnostic. Who's at risk? Yeah. Yeah, the risk is uh, it's also important too because right now the the Boston University teams identified four or five genes that are related to CT, but they're only related to CT severity. They're not related to whether or not you get it. Basically, uh, the odds that there is a gene that protects you from getting CT is very unlikely. So you know, and I, I think back to the, the study we published in 2017 where he said 110 of the first 111 NFL players we studied had it, or you know, right now it's all but one NHL player. Like somebody would, in theory would have a variant that would protect them if one existed. But we do see a lot of variability in terms of how fast it goes and, uh, you know, how severe it becomes and how much it affects you. There's a million variables there that we are well known in Alzheimer's disease and other things. So just because you got it doesn't mean it's going to destroy your life. So the hopeful message is, you know, yeah, we, you hear about the horror stories, the younger they die and the more spectacularly that's what you learn about. There are a lot of people who live, you know, well into their 60s or 70s without any symptoms, but then may succumb to dementia due to this. Um, but, you know, so, so I don't want people who think they might have it to panic. Like just if you treat the symptoms, you stay away from drugs and alcohol, you, you, you know, you live well, you know, you should still live a nice long life. But... Um, the horror story should be enough to make us take advantage of all these opportunities we have to prevent it. And that's why we tell those stories is because it didn't have to be this way. Did it change? Has it changed your ability to enjoy impact sports, football, which you played hockey, um, anything else that, you know, might be a part of it personally. Oh, definitely. Um, You know, I mean, I I remember as a football player, like I used to love to cream quarterbacks in the head with my head, <laughs> you know, talk <laughs> shit down. like I love to knock people out. I mean, I remember, I remember knocking out a poor kid named Bubba Mariani in high school on a punt where I just, you know, he caught it and I just leveled him helmet to helmet and he got carted off and I thought I was a hero. Uh, and as a fan though, you know, yeah, as it's, it's, it's this started to happen, you realize what the consequences are. Like I no longer enjoy the big hits. 
like it's fine to see a good shoulder to shoulder tackle now and again, but you just realize like in my mind, like we've all been sort of, um, you know, trained from a young age to think this is normal behavior. None of the sports really have to be this violent or this rough, but because a business enterprise is built on it and someone's making money, there's not much willingness to change or experiment or go, oh, this was a bad idea. Why don't we play sports where people don't get a degenerative brain disease? Um, that conversation is impossible to have because there's so much money in the line. And so I, I feel sympathy every time I see some you know poor young player get knocked out or injured in, in a way, especially when it was preventable and it's liable within the rules. Like it just makes me sad that they're like a victim of our own sort of um, lack of, you know, fortitude to say, you know, these are people like we can do it a different way. You were a very well sought out person after the recent uh, events in the NFL with Tua. Um, how did that make you feel when you saw that? I, I felt terrible that I was right. So basically I was trying, like when I saw the first concussion on Sunday and uh, saw that they claimed it was a back injury, like I, I knew in my bones that, you know, that that's an absurd diagnosis. He had a concussion. You know, we've always seen people covering up concussions, but he had so many obvious signs that any player would have tried to hide that he definitely had a concussion. And so then I, I called it out because, hey, I didn't want to see people get put back in the game when they're that obviously concussed. But then I didn't want to see him play the next game. You had a Thursday night game coming up, and it looked like as the week went on, they were trying to claim it wasn't a concussion. I mean, the whole story doesn't add up. You know, the idea he was never put in the concussion protocol because that would have he would have been impossible to get back for Thursday. But they did still test him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That became a talking point. So the idea that they didn't think they were wrong is, is a little absurd. I think they knew what they were doing, but they were still willing to roll the dice with his life and his career, um, despite the knowledge that, well, you know, he's already had a concussion. To play four days later at a second concussion, that can be life-changing. That can be permanent symptoms. That can be second impact syndrome and death. And so when I saw a couple hours before that the NFL was actually promoting it as Tua versus Joe, I thought the NFL would try to put a stop to it. And I said, all right, fine. And so I tweeted, like, if he gets a second concussion tonight, this is so obviously easily seen coming that everybody should lose their jobs. And unfortunately, I was right. I remember I was, I was hosting a fundraiser in New York, and uh, at 9.30, you know, my phone started blowing up and getting calls from the New York Times, and I was out doing interviews till 2 in the morning just to try to make a moment out of this. It doesn't happen to the next guy because it was – we could all see it coming. Basically, you know, every quarterback has, you know, 5 to 10% chance of getting a concussion in any game. But the idea that you could get two in five days, and it didn't take a genius to see this coming. You're more at risk when it happens. You're going to be slower in your reaction time. You're like worse decisions. You know, I, it was almost like Tua didn't see the guy who was coming to get him because uh, I know he was faster than him. He could run away. So it was just sad. And, and luckily, he seems to be doing okay right now. But, you know, this, the, the end of this book is not written yet. Um, he gets another concussion this season. Suddenly, this or even next season, the narrative will change from the Dolphins, uh, you know, really screwed him up and, and did him a disservice to uh, there must be some genetic reason why he keeps getting concussions. It's not their fault. And now he doesn't get that $50 million a year contract he deserves. He gets a, he's a backup for the rest of his life. And his life takes a different trajectory because somebody made a mistake medically and multiple mistakes. And that person will not be held to account. So Ken Dryden wrote an amazing book called Game Change, which I know you're familiar with, uh, about the life and tragic death of Steve Monador. And uh, he spent a good part of the, the second part of his book talking about ways to make 
the game safer in response to what we now know about CTE and repetitive hits to the head. And uh, one of the things that he proposed was a penalty for uh, any hit to the head, blow to the head, whether intentional or accidental, as a means of reducing blows to the head. And, And the impetus is, in Ken's own words, reduce, reduce, reduce. Um, is there anything else that uh, you would think of, you can think of with regard to how to adapt the rules on the ice and the protocols off the ice to make the game safer today for players that are playing? So, I mean, I think, you know, Ken has it exactly right that that's, that's the number one goal. Like, you can, your brain's meant to take some accidental hits now and again, but the idea that they're now, like, institutionalized in the game and inevitable and you're going to take so many is what is make, continuing to make CT a known risk. Um, you know, I, I, you always need to look at people through their whole life cycle in a sport. So, like, it's not just the NHL hits that matter. It's, it's, it's college or juniors or high school or youth. So I'm, I, you know, was happy that about 10 years ago, you know, USA Hockey and eventually Hockey Canada raised the age of checking to 13. I honestly think it can go another two years higher and probably two years after that. But, you know, they got to take it one step at a time. Um, because kids don't need to have the risk of CT to play sports. Like, it doesn't seem like it's a fair choice to ask them to play the rules, uh, by the, you know, play by the same rules that the guys get paid millions to take those risks are, are, are taking. So I do think there needs to be this huge mental separation of youth sports for personal development versus sports for money and entertainment. Um, and then, yeah, I think it comes down to having a, just a much stronger respect for the brain. Like wherever you can eliminate head, head contact, you should. Um, and so, it, it, you know, you, you can envision like the reality is you could get the NHL to like a no checking place, no fighting place, and it would still be as popular, but no one's willing to take that risk <laughs> because that there's a huge financial risk to that. Um, and the players take part in that financial risk. So I don't think, you know, people are going to want to get there, but that you know, Ken's right, that that is like the, the rational way to go. Can we find a way to educate the public to enjoy more Olympic version of the game or whatever it is uh, that we know works and, um, and, and, you know, let people still make a career out of this and make good money, but not end up with these problems. Okay. Adam. Well, I, I've got nothing else to add other than uh, Chris. Uh, uh, you've been absolutely fascinating to listen to. I uh, I've learned so much and we've done multiple episodes. I've read multiple books on the subject, but uh, absolutely spectacular. Thank you for explaining it in the terms that you have. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, Chris, I just want to say um, I know you're a real busy guy and uh, your phone, uh, my experience with you is your phone is going off like that all day, uh, every day, uh, a man after my own heart. And I really appreciate you taking uh, your very valuable time and sharing it with all of us and sharing it with with me and Adam and Jesse and uh, coming on here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, th- and thanks for everything you're doing to help advance this conversation at the NHL level. Uh, if not for you, I think we'd be talking about a lot less. 
This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's sportsbook. Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN. 